Hi, everybody. This is Tiffany Bova. Welcome to this edition of the What's Next podcast, where I have the wonderful pleasure of getting somebody on the other side of this conversation, Alan Murray, joining us here today. He is the CEO of Fortune Media. He oversees the business and editorial operations of the independent media company and is known for expanding its digital and conference franchises. He also has a newsletter every day called CEO Daily, which is my go-to. Like, it's always my go-to. I find something every day that I want to read more of. So if you're looking for a newsletter, CEO Daily is the one. Prior to joining Fortune, he's been at Pew Research, Wall Street Journal, CNBC. He's written a number of books, but we are here today to talk about his new one, Tomorrow's Capitalist. So welcome to the show, Alan. Tiffany, thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's such a pleasure. You know, I, I think it must be interesting for you to sort of the news guy, right? Being on the other side and being interviewed, it must be like you want to know exactly what questions are going to happen, but we're going to have a fun conversation about your new book. But before we get started, yeah, I'd love to ground us in capitalism as a whole, because I think that it gets a bad rap, it gets a good rap, it sort of depends on what camp you're in. So maybe you can sort of start us at the beginning of kind of defining what it is and how we got to where we are today. Yeah, look, uh, um, capitalism is the best system that anybody has come up with for organizing economies. I think we've proven that over the course of the last 200 years alternative systems don't work very well. It's based on freedom, free free markets, free ability to associate. And, and in some ways, capitalism may even be the wrong word for what we're talking about here, because the big characteristic of capitalism in the 20th century were these giant corporations. We call them the Fortune 500 for obvious reasons. Um, but <laughs> these big corporations, which were built up because you couldn't really assemble railroads or telecommunication networks or giant factories using a totally free market trading system. You had to have an organizing principle. And that's what these companies became. You know, uh, 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 Ronald Coase wrote a, a, a famous uh, paper, won the uh, Nobel Prize for it, The Economist, for saying this was all about eliminating the transaction costs of a market economy to create these large corporations. So I think in a way, what I'm writing about in this book is the dramatic changes that are taking place in those large companies. Well, I think, you know, listen, I, in probably every conversation, it's a Fortune 500 comment I will make, right? But <laughs> the last time I checked, there's only 500 Fortune 500, Yeah. <laughs> right? right? Um, how has that Fortune 500 changed over decades? Because you know, to your point, it started out as being very big companies to remove this transactional layer. But how many have sort of come in and out? I know there's a ton of, you know, stats that are old and new about how many have actually flipped over over the course of you tracking it over time. And, and how has that shifted? Yeah, there's a lot of turnover. Let me give you my favorite statistic about what's changed in the Fortune 500, because I think this underlies a lot of what we're going to be talking about in this podcast. It's really critical. If you go back, say, 50 years, and you looked at the balance sheets of the 500 companies, what you would find is more than 80% of their value, the value on the balance sheet, was derived from physical stuff. It was plants, it was equipment, it was oil in the ground, it was inventory on the shelves, all things that, by the way, took a lot of financial capital to support. 
So it, it's kind of understandable how shareholder uh, capitalism, we have to make sure we're giving a good return to the people who are giving us the capital became critical. It was the companies that had capital that did well. If you do the same exercise today, you look at the Fortune 500 companies, their balance sheets, more than 85% of the value is intangibles. It's intellectual property, it's brand value, the emotional connection to the brand, it's software, it's stuff that is much less tied to financial capital and physical things, and much more tied to people, uh, it, the talent that you're able to gather around the company, the talent that can walk out the door every night. So I think an awful lot of what we're going to be talking about and what I write about in the book comes down to that fundamental change. We have big companies, but the big companies in the top 10 of the Fortune 500 today are tech companies, not oil companies. It's a very different dynamic. Well, one could argue that everybody's a tech company now. <laughs> right? Well, that's right. Yeah, right. That's right. Um, but fair point. And I, and I think that uh, I feel like the last two years have been a reckoning in so many organizations around that entire people conversation, because you know, I'm working on a project right now where I sort of did this look back and said, over each industrial revolution, how much further away did an organization actually get from its employees and get from its customers? And that gap has led us a little bit, I, I'm saying this very quickly, So, but that gap has led us to this kind of great resignation, right? It's not like people woke up one day and goes, I'm right. not happy. They've just not been happy because we've just gotten further and further away from maybe part of, of what actually made up a company, I, to your point, which is people. I, I think you're absolutely right. You know, uh, uh, Scott Galloway, I guess, uh, referred to the uh, to COVID as the great acceleration because it's like every trend that was in place before the pandemic hit got accelerated during the pandemic. And I think the great resignation is one of those. Companies were more and more coming to the recognition that the real source of their value was their people. They were talented. They had the power, not the right. company, and that gave them options. So it's just a very different dynamic than what existed when I started my career 40 years ago. Yeah, I, I would agree. And and, and how, uh, more importantly, technology has woven into everything that we do, right? This, I've been in tech now almost 30 years. And so, you know, I remember uh, going to college, it was a dual disk drive NEC laptop with, you know, WordPerfect and a green screen. So it's been a minute. But what has also happened is it's shifted this kind of tomorrow's capitalist, that technology has uh, allowed this acceleration, but also taken the power, I feel like, away from just the Fortune 500 and blended it more evenly, where, you know, somebody like an Uber can start with a dozen employees and become a unicorn and, you know, and, and continue to grow. Well so, well, so Tiffany, let me push back a little bit on that. Yeah, please. Yes and no. The answer okay. is yes and no. Yes, technology has made it much easier for companies to disrupt existing industries. And so if you ask any Fortune 500 company today who your most dangerous competitor is, you know, it used to be pretty easy. I mean, J.P. Morgan would tell you Bank of America or yeah. uh, GM would tell you Ford. But today what they recognize is there could be a startup coming from someplace else you know, JP Morgan may be disrupted by Bitcoin. Uh, we've right. already seen GM and Ford disrupted by Tesla. So it's a very different dynamic. But here's the thing. Uh, and, and this is, uh, I'll tell you, I've, I've been at Fortune for six years. And when I was first invited to come as editor in chief, a good friend of mine said, you don't want to do that. And I said, <laughs> why, 
I said, why not? And they said, well, Fortune is the magazine of big companies and, and all the excitement in the economy today is smaller companies. And I said, well, what do you mean? And they said, well, look, Google, Apple. <laughs> um, and, you know, what you realize, Facebook, what you realize is, yes, disruptors can come in more rapidly, but they can also scale more rapidly. They don't, right. it doesn't require all that financial capital to reach scale. And so companies rock it up the Fortune 500 very quickly. And so at the end of the day, all these companies that a decade ago were startups are now in the top 10 of the Fortune 500. So in, in, in that sense, I think the Fortune 500 still very much defines business success. I, oh, I don't disagree. I think we're saying the same thing. Yeah, I definitely don't disagree. My comment was more that the that the innovation, the disruption is not only coming from that group, right? It, it, it all of a sudden, oh. it kind of democratized, right? Where small businesses didn't used to be able to buy software and buy big computer equipment, you oh. know, and get the access to talent because everything was asset-based, had to be on-prem, very expensive. Exactly. And it kind of kept them out of the game. And now you have the ability, right, where you can invest in as a service technology or AWS or Salesforce or whatever it might be and say, I can get access to similar technology that the big companies have to compete. Totally. And scale quickly. And scale quickly. And so with that, do you think that that has been a catalyst in many ways for this Tomorrow's Capitalist, that now the that the conversation, the people, the systems, the culture is so different weaving uh, into the Fortune 500? I, I think so, Tiffany. I think that's precisely it. Look, I came to this recognition that something very different was going on in the world of business. I came as a journalist. I came because I was in a in a kind of unique position, both at Fortune and previously at the Wall Street Journal, to have lots of conversations with CEOs, with the leaders of, of big companies, small companies, just what I did. And over the course of the last decade, what I realized was I was hearing something very, very different in the way these CEOs were talking about their commitments to society, about their commitments to climate. And being a journalist, I would always follow up by saying, this, well, this is very different than your predecessor spoke, the way your predecessor spoke, what's, what's changed? And the number one answer consistently I would get is my employees. This is what my employees want from me. I'm, I'm getting pressure to do this for my employees. So. I feel like the increasing importance of human capital has been has coincided with this rethinking of the purpose of the corporation because business leaders have had to think about their employees in different ways. Yeah, that, you know, as you know, I know you know my CEO really well, Mark yeah. Benioff. Uh, um, this business is the greatest platform for change and doing well by doing good. You know, this whole conversation and then the business roundtable. Um, really kind of got on board with right. let's all sign and figure out a way to be better stewards to the greater shareholder community and stakeholder community, not just because we're publicly traded and we owe the capitalist response, right, of making people money. Right. But it's gotten a little bit of pushback oh, of yeah. how do we actually measure this? And well, what about the capitalist side of it? How how do you reconcile this with the leaders that you're speaking with? How do they reconcile? Oh, I, I think that's the million dollar question. And look, 
if you think about it, Tiffany, we spent over 100 years building the financial metrics and infrastructure that enabled shareholder capitalism to work. You know, you have the big four accounting firm. Every, every organization is filled with financial planners. It took a lot of time to figure that out. And we are only at the beginning of thinking about stakeholder capitalism and how that works and how we measure it and how companies are held accountable and how you manage the trade-offs between shareholders and other stakeholders. Uh, I, I, I think in some ways the most dramatic example is on the climate front, uh, where you've seen an explosion in the last two years of companies making commitments to reach net zero by 2050 or sooner. And then the SEC came out a month ago and said, okay, great, but if you're going to do that, you've got to disclose it and you got to disclose it in a consistent way so investors can understand what the hell you're doing and see if it's real or if it's just a bunch of talk. And so all of a sudden we find ourselves barreling into a world where you're going to have to have a degree of, of climate metrics and accountability that no one even imagined 10 years ago. So I think the, the question you asked is a good one. I don't think we know the answer yet. I, it's going to be, be very difficult to manage the trade-offs. But, but I guess the point of this book and my point in general is what became clear to me over the course of speaking, reporting, writing on this is this isn't a fad. It's not a handful of CEOs trying to be woke or politically correct or kowtow to Elizabeth Warren or something like that. It is a fundamental change in the way business operates, and we're not going back. Yeah, it's kind of almost like they were, uh, you know, hiding those that really were leading this way because it wasn't cool or it wasn't acceptable yet, and it hadn't kind of made it to the 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 nomenclature. I'd only say that because you could go back and say Unilever with Paul Pullman, like when he said, I'm not going to report on these numbers anymore. I'm going to talk about what I'm doing on the good side of things, to the environment, to my employees. And, and he got a lot of flack for that as he, a person. A huge yeah. amount of pushback. You know, it, 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 the history of this is interesting. I mean, if you talk to Jim Collins, the great business right. author, advisor, he'll tell you that the best companies have always been very purpose-driven and have always looked far behind, beyond profit. And, and he can give you examples of companies that have done that. And I guess that's, and I think that is true. I mean, I've gone back and looked myself and we did go through a period in the last quarter of the 20th century where the focus on shareholders just got particularly intense. But I also think the difference between what Jim Collins is talking about and what you have today is it's not a choice today. It's like table stakes. You can't operate in the economy unless you take a much broader view of your impact on society and look beyond your shareholders. And and there's so many I can give so many examples of conversations that I ha have that illustrate this. But it's clear to me this is not you don't CEOs don't come to work and say, oh, do I want to be a stakeholder capitalist or do <laughs> I not want to be a stakeholder capitalist? You don't have any choice anymore. It's being forced upon you. Well, and I think it's also more broad than just, and look, I'm a huge fan of the UN's SDGs, right? And putting a stake in the ground and understanding, you know, net zero as one attribute to this, you know, ESGs is employee is sort of that first, and that acronym is E. Um, but you, you know, we've, we've gone down a path where, you know, historically, 
it's we need more diversity on boards. We need more women on boards. And, you know, we're going to try to make this a requirement, right, where you have to have some. And it, it kind of was like, yes, 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 kind of fizzled out, you know, around the world is sort of picked up. We Have we really made progress? If you look at the CEOs in the Fortune 500, I think we're down to or up to whatever number. It's not large. I don't we're know getting, what the latest we're is. Close to, we're getting close to 10%, which is still way too small. Right. I think it's like in the, is it in the high thirties now? I think something like that or in the thirties. Anyway, that, that, that kind of mandated shift, right? Like this is what we want to see and look at how long it's taken and how hard it's been to turn that corner. Yet I feel like, I don't know how much we're turning the corner because the conversation has gotten so hyped right now, as you said, right, it's really right. sort of pushed forward, but will we find ourselves two to three years from now facing this similar thing where even with all the push for diversity on boards, even with all the push for women in, in CEO slots and, and people of color, it's not just it's not just women. Uh, ultimately, we to your point, right? We're almost at ten percent, which is great considering it started at you know two percent. So we are making progress. It feels awfully slow. Yeah, yeah, and, and look, that that may be. I mean, another way to look at that, uh, I think things are changing pretty quickly. If you look at the diversity front, for instance, a lot has happened in the last couple of years of companies taking, not just making commitments, but saying, we're going to make our commitments public. You can hold us accountable. We're creating new programs. Uh, uh, we're redoing all our job postings to make sure we don't require four-year degrees. We're doing uh, new uh, partnerships with the uh, uh HBCUs. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of very real stuff going on. I think the question is, is it enough, and is it fast enough to make the kind of progress that people want to see? And I, I I agree, that's an open question. This isn't a silver bullet, um, uh, but it's but it is a real change. Things are different. Yeah, and and you know, it's always fascinating to me that when I have this conversation with people, you know, either face to face or over the Zoom, or I I find it fascinating when some people will push back on these conversations as being kind of woke. That's such an overused term, but like it's a bad thing that we want to do better yeah. for the planet, for people of color, for women, for underserved communities, for our community. You know what I'm saying? Like, is that a bad thing? I'm confused as to why. Yeah. You well, know. It, it, it's interesting. You get, uh, I, I've, I talk, I confront the critics. That's the, that's the nature of a journalist, right? Anybody who says I'm wrong, I said, well, tell me why. Let's talk about it. Let's debate yep. it. And you get criticism from the left and the right. From the right, it is, oh, this is a bunch of woke CEOs and they're trying to kowtow to the Democrats in power. And, and they say it is a bad thing. And if you take the next step and say, well, why is, is it a bad thing? Uh, they will say, and, you know, you can see this in the pages of The Economist or the editors of The Wall Street Journal. They'll say, well, because it has CEOs taken their eye off the ball. The, you know, the beauty of a shareholder approach is you have a clear metric, profit maximization, make money for your shareholders, stick to your business. These guys aren't smart enough to do three things at the same time. So just give them one thing to do and let them focus on it. I kind of get that. But like, who really, who in life really has the luxury of just focusing on one thing. Right. I mean, these companies are are huge and important and have an enormous social impact. And what a lot of them say to me is, if we don't do this better than we're doing it today, we run the risk of losing our operating license. So to me, that's the argument against the people on the right. They've got to do this 
to maintain their right to operate, to save capitalism. On the left, what you hear is a different argument, which is, hey, nobody elected these CEOs. Why should they be at the center of geopolitics, at the center of climate change, at the center of social justice? They're not the right people to do it. It should be our government leaders, to which I always answer, well, yeah, sure, but your government leaders aren't doing it. We have a dysfunctional government. And then the kind of somewhat cheap go-to response is, well, government is dysfunctional because corporations have made it dysfunctional with their lobbying and distortion. I spent most of my career in Washington. I think that's a false analysis, but I do understand it. And let me give you one example. You've got all these companies saying, we want to do a better job improving our returns to society. We want to help people. We want to help the climate. But almost every one of them has is part of large groups of lobbyists whose goal when it comes to taxation is to drive corporate taxation to the lowest number possible. Now, if you really care about your returns to society, don't you have to rethink how you're thinking about taxation, not just how do we get the legal requirements as low as we possibly can, but what is, taxation may be the most important way we contribute to society. What is our obligation to pay a reasonable share of taxation? So I, that's just a, a one example that shows this whole notion of, of stakeholder capitalism is nascent. It's, I think, like you, I think it's a good thing, an undeniably good thing, but it's not mature. It has a long way to go to get where you and I might want it to be. Well, I'll say this. It's fantastic to hear the conversation as often as I do now versus how as often as I heard it five years ago or 10 years ago or 15 years okay. ago. I mean, right. So, and I see it in real time, like you, I talk to a lot of small businesses and large businesses around the globe. And even when we were talking ahead of time and I was saying my go-to newsletter is CEO daily and, you know, I read fortune, but in the spirit of sustainability, I went digital, right? So making as a consumer, conscious decisions of brands I choose to do business with, how I choose to actually consume what I consume and how I can possibly be a better steward. And I think that it goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning of this, Alan, is the employees are saying to their leaders, I want to work somewhere where I am proud that we yeah. are doing these things. Yeah. And Tiffany, what that does in turn is this is no longer, you know, 10 years ago, if you were talking about diversity or you were talking about climate, everybody would say, yeah, yeah, that's the right thing to do because we want to be good companies and this is the good thing to do. But what's what's different now is the business case is so clear. I can't tell you the number of conversations I have with leaders who say, I'm doing this because I have to do it. I can't afford in, a, in the middle of a war for talent to say, I'm only going to source my talent from one half of the population. Right. I can't afford in a world that's increasingly heading, you know, on fire to say, I'm going to ignore that and just focus on, or in a world where Tesla is taken, if I'm an automobile company and Tesla is coming up and, and has a larger market cap than all the auto companies combined, I can't say, oh, I'm going to ignore the climate and just keep making my combustion engine cars. So I think I think the big thing that's changed is that this has become a business business imperative. Everybody understands that because of the nature of the economy, because of the power that talent has, you have to run your company this way to be successful. Yeah, it's a, I feel like it's a bottom up movement, not a top down directive. Right. It, right. To your point. 
Yeah. It's more of a must-do thing than just a feel-good thing. Yeah, because Tesla wouldn't have done as well if consumers didn't say, yes, I actually want to drive an electric car, right? I mean, because if yes. could built it, but if people weren't making their own personal conscious decision that I want to do something for whatever reason, they may say because they think it's cool or, you know, it could be because of the climate. It could be for whatever reason. Yeah, Tiffany, I've had so many conversations like this in the last couple of years. We had uh, Soren Sku, who's the CEO of Moller Maersk, the big shipping company, uh, at an event we did uh, a few months ago. And he was talking about a big investment that they are making with the, uh, a Danish power company to build wind farms in the North Sea. And those wind farms will be used to create clean hydrogen fuel that he can use in his ships. And it's a very expensive undertaking. So I said to him, why are you doing this? That's a lot of money. Why are you committing all this money to this kind of risky out there project? And he said, I, I'm doing it because I have to do it. He said, every day I get call from my, calls from my customers who say, hey, I just made this net zero commitment to get all the carbon emissions out of my supply chain. And you're part of my supply chain. How are you going to do this? You, you got to do this for me. So it's really starting to get pushed down in, in, in the economy. And I, I, I hear more and more of that kind of, or another example was the CEO of uh, Freeport McMoran, the mining company, who is not, a, I promise you, is not a woke individual. And, you know, <laughs> yet, and he said, oh, we've been doing ESG statements for years, but now we're serious about it. I didn't push on why he wasn't serious about him before, but I said, why are you serious about him? He said, because our customers are demanding it. We right. have to do it. So it's right. it's really, this has really become not a fad, not woke CEOs. It's become a business imperative. Yeah. And I think more and more of this transparency from the top, you know, transparency on earnings, transparency on supply chains, um, and then clearly communicating. I mean, I think that you know, as you mentioned a few minutes ago that, gosh, CEOs should just focus on what they're good at. They can't do three things at a time. Well, now they have to listen to the street, listen to their employees, take follow what the SEC is saying, get all these metrics in place. Like it's not three things. It's a lot of things. It's a lot of things. And and you know what's what's so interesting here? Here's here's another you go go back to the Fortune 500 and what's changed in the last, say, 50 years. Fortune 500 companies, big corporate hierarchy, were, were big corporate hierarchies where you had all these people out in the field and they would do sell, make, whatever, pass information up to the top. It would climb up the hierarchy and then the folks would sit in the in the C-suite and come up with a strategy and then they would tell everybody what to do <laughs> and the orders would come back down. Anybody who runs a company like that today is going to be out of business in a, in a very few years. You can't wait for that information to travel up the corporate hierarchy. And so CEOs find themselves in a position where their job is much less about telling people what to do, which maybe it used to be, and much more about inspiring them, creating the North Star, creating the moral guardrails, attracting great talent, retaining great talent. And, and, and so all that kind of communication and signaling and stuff that you're talking about is now the job. That's what the, that's the core of the job. You've got to attract great people. You've got to get them working together. You've got to put them on a path in a clear direction with an understanding of how they're supposed to work and what your values are in order to be successful. 
Well, the World Economic Forum says that 50% of employees will have to reskill by 2025. You know, a lot of this is around yep. digital talent, but there's also other things. So I'd love to round this out with what do you think that our educational system is not teaching today, potential in the MBA program, right? Because that tends to be the hunting ground for leaders. While I don't always necessarily agree that that's the best place for it, 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 it just, it is. But what could be added to education secondary, right? So college, MBA programs um, to help prepare leaders of the future for this understanding of this multi-stakeholder uh, capitalism, if you will. Yeah, there's so much. There's so much. I mean, empathy is important. Lifelong learning is important. Uh, understanding these basic dynamics that we were talking about. I have a colleague, Jeff Colvin, who wrote a book a couple of years ago in which he said, you know, the company of the 20th century was really working to make people better machines, right? That's yes. what you were if you were on the factory floor at uh, Ford Motor Company. You know, you were a cog in a great machine. Um, and he said that in the 21st century, the machines are taking care of themselves. Thank you very much. We really need to make people who are better people. And so the things I keep hearing, particularly if you talk about the C-suite, is empathy, is creativity. You've got to think about, you got to remake your company because all of this is changing so quickly. Six Sigma efficiency procedures are not going to do the trick. You really have to have the the creativity and and the diversity of views and the understanding of your employees and your customers to rethink everything you're doing. And so I, I think all of that has to become a much bigger part of, of the curriculum. Absolutely. And, and uh, the soft stuff is the hard stuff. No question. You know, I have, <laughs> I have over the course of the last five years probably done a hundred small conversations with CEOs like 25 or 30 at a time talking about technology disruption or digital innovation. And what fascinates me is every single one of those different group, every time you always spend about the first 15 or 20 minutes talking about technology, but then inevitably you find yourself talking about culture, about how do I get my middle managers to accept yep. that their whole job is going to change? How do I get uh, you know, everybody on board, people who've never done this before on board to do this. And so uh, so the great challenges that lie ahead of us, I mean, I, I'm a big techno optimist. I think we're going to have lots of great technology breakthroughs, but the great challenges are creating human organizations that can make full use of those uh, technology breakthroughs. That's, that's, that's going to take the creativity. Yeah, well, I, I participated in one of those roundtables and I made a statement that said the fastest way to get customers to love your brand is to get employees to love their job. And you used it in your mm -hmm. newsletter. It was sort of a great little bucket list check for me. So thank you for doing that. <laughs> I always <laughs> looking for great wisdom. The, but this has been an amazing conversation uh, for all of you listeners out there. Please go pick up your copy of Tomorrow's Capitalist by Alan Murray. It's going to be a great read on getting a handle of where we're going in the future future. If you're a leader, a startup leader, if you aspire to get on that Fortune 500 list, this is the book for you. So Alan, thank you so much for joining us today on the What's Next Live podcast. 
how about telling people how they can keep in touch with you and where they can pick up a copy of the book and what you're up to next? Well, you can pick up a copy copy of the book anywhere. It's available. To keep in touch with me, the best thing to do is to subscribe to my daily newsletter. It doesn't cost you anything. It's called the CEO Daily. Uh, you can subscribe to free. And, and I'll tell you, uh, for those who do, I respond to all the... Uh, email I get in response to the CEO daily newsletter. So you can find out what I'm thinking. And if you disagree with me, you can shoot a note back. And I, and I can validate the fact that he actually answers his email. Hence he's on the show. Hence he's on the show. So thank you, Mr. Alan Murray for joining us here today. Go make a difference with this great new book. Uh, look forward to continuing to read fortune as well as CEO daily. So thanks for joining us today on the what's next podcast. Thanks, Tiffany. It was my honor.